0: Hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Heart of Healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Hallie Teko. Today, my guest is Stuart Green, who is an SVP and general manager of the life science business at Veridigm. He's also served in executive roles at IQVIA, Symphony Health, and Signet Health. Stu is a go-to leader and friend to many folks in the digital health space and offers great insights and advice to founders looking to sell to, partner with, or get acquired by the Goliaths of healthcare. And I'm excited for our conversation. Stu, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Haley. It's great to be here.
0: Why don't we start by telling us your journey in digital health? And I particularly want to know how you've maintained your optimism while others who've been in this space this long tend to get pretty cranky.
1: All right. I think you just called me old again, <laughs> but we're going to work our way through that. Um, okay. So I kind of grew up in this business, right? Uh, I went to Drexel University in Philadelphia. And when I was coming out of school, you either worked for an insurance company or you worked in the pharmaceutical industry if you lived in this area. And I was fortunate enough to be able to spend some time inside what was uh, Klein, Beecham, now GlaxoSmithKline, uh, where I went to work every day. And this was back when PCs were being rolled out. Uh, uh, Windows migrations. Uh, so I know I am kind of dating myself there, but that was really how I got into the pharma industry. And I was lucky enough to meet a few people from what was then IMS Health. And that's kind of how the journey began. I say I spent most of my, I guess, formulative years uh, at IMS Health, kind of growing up with what is now an outstanding group of leaders. You know, it's kind of cool when you start with a bunch of folks and, and you always wonder, Hey, what goes on in those meetings behind closed doors? And then one day you're the person in that meeting and you realize it really wasn't that, you know, (laughs) and and
0: you regret wanting to be in those meetings. It
1: wasn't that highbrow, but Uh um, I was very lucky. IMS uh, provided me with wonderful opportunities around the world uh, to really see the pharmaceutical industry, not just from a US perspective, but I spent a lot of time in Europe learning about the healthcare system there, which was really fantastic. Mm. Subsequent to that, I was fortunate enough to get brought into Symphony Health. So a number of my former colleagues at IMS Health had gone over to Symphony Health to kind of take what was at the time not a very strong competitor and build it into a very strong competitor. And that was really fun. Uh, We worked with the private equity group, uh, Symphony Technology Group. At the time it was led by Dr. Ramesh Wadwani, who is just a force of nature and just an unbelievable entrepreneur. And we were able to sell that business to PRA uh, back in 2017 for an excellent return for our investors, for ourselves. It was terrific. PRA has subsequently been acquired by Icon. And, you know, I was talking about a little bit earlier how people in the industry tend to grow up together. You know, I was fortunate to meet some folks here at Veridigm. Um, Veridigm's president, Tom Langan, is a former colleague of mine. Uh, I tell people he bamboozled me into <laughs> coming over by giving me a softball consulting gig. And now all I do is work. So, but it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. It's really been a wonderful experience thus far.
0: Yeah. I mean, you've been in digital health since before we even called it digital health. What was it like kind of in the the early days of healthcare IT, which is what I guess it was called and still some people call it that today. How is kind of the the attitude towards Using technology and having technology enable new business models in healthcare, how it, obviously it's changed so much. Um, but like from your perspective, you were actually there. I've only heard the war stories. I only have been in this space since 2010. Um, so curious to hear that.
1: Yeah, I guess I started in 1989, but I wouldn't say for the first five years I really knew anything but I did a lot of observation. You know, one of the things I think entrepreneurs and, and and startup employees need to keep in the back of their mind is the terminology that is used across the industry, right? Digital health has a very broad terminology in the context of how we look at different businesses. The evolution of a lot of this, you know, it's funny, pharma typically is a is an industry full with brilliant people that want to do good work for the greater good, but they're also a very conservative group. So what I mean by that is there's a lot of follow me type, type work processes there. And I think initially where pharma focused from an IT perspective, forget all the back office stuff and you know, payroll systems and all of that. But there's really two sides where digital health has come into play. One side is the commercial entities and one side is research. And commercial was probably, you know, I'll call it the easy science to solve, right? So you went out, there were databases full of physician prescription information, of, of distributor uh, information, Global data was normalized so people in a corporate office could get a better understanding of what was going on around the world. And that was really something that became established and almost almost a standard in the space. Then what started to happen is as businesses evolved, you know, again, forget that people were using technology for improved work efforts, you know, more efficient, more, more efficient deliverables but they started using these data in a way that they could make decisions, right? So you have real world evidence group, real world solutions group. You had, you know, the, the other side of it, you know, in the limbs world where you had actual researchers using the data to, to help them make decisions, whether it's, should we go into a specific therapeutic class? Should we not go into a specific therapeutic class? Because I think pharma, more than most industries, is an industry of lore. So anecdotes go from company to company. And it's a very, you know, I've had people that were customers that then worked for me, that were then customers again, that were then peers. So it's an industry where it's a lot of the same people going around. So what happens is that lore tends to grow. And you're seeing now that, you know, I heard a guy named Matt Emmons who was the uh, CEO of Shire many years ago. He, he said something I'll never forget. He said, "Hey, the easy science is done." Right? We don't need another aspirin. We don't need another cholesterol reducing drug in the vein of a lipitor or Provacol or something like that. Right? We need to make material strides in medicines to make them different. And what was happening is people would look for one simple indication or, or just, you know, something to keep that patent extended where I think now with everything being backed by data rather than anecdotes, and I don't mean to, to demean the scientists, I mean, they're all much smarter than me, but they, they, now everything is backed Mm. by data.
0: Yeah. When I've heard this term, like uh, data, AI being used as like the co-pilot. So it's not replacing the scientists, but it's helping them do their job better and faster.
1: Oh, I would agree. You know, look, there's two kinds of data. There's structured data, which there's a lot of providers out there that can provide that information. And we're one of them. But the real key is the unstructured data. You know, it's it's. The access to the information that doesn't just form fit inside of a checkbox EHR record or a prescription, it's the notes that the doctor has when they're trying to work through, I would say, more complex, consistent cases that they have to deal with a lot. You know, we found as we try to understand the patient journey that this unstructured data, and look, Mm. you can do it. By hand, it's yep. really hard and it takes a long time. Yep. Now, a lot of these companies, specifically startups, are building out these large language models, really advancing data extraction, you know, and 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 that's something that's super exciting. I mean, for us at Veriline, yeah. we are very focused on that across our business units, not just life yeah. sciences, but payer, provider, and a way to differentiate ourselves by having more germane information that our clients can use in a faster. Yeah. So they can get it faster.
0: It, it reminds me of this new feature I noticed on Amazon where, so I used to look at a product and go through and scroll through dozens of reviews to kind of find kind of, and, and then synthesize it in my head and make a decision on the purchase. And now I don't know if you've noticed this, they do a little AI snippet that gives a summary and it says, People who've purchased this product think that it's high quality, but it's a little overpriced and, you know, they kind of give context to all of it. And that's what I'm thinking of right now is how we're using, I mean, it's unstructured data, just people writing their reviews of a product and thinking about the, doing the same thing with doctor's notes.
1: Well, I would draw, draw one strong differentiator though. Okay. When you look at something on Amazon or Yelp or a public forum, it's kind of a blind author. Right. It could be the person who invented the product. And the reality is we don't know. In life sciences, the people informing the unstructured notes are the people we want to get to. Right. So we can Mm. have a lot more confidence in what we're getting out of there than I think. So even better. uh, Maybe in a consumer (laughs) world.
0: Even better. I mean, I think the consumer world one's pretty good. So that's exciting for uh, for the life sciences industry.
1: I don't know. That's restaurant reviews. I don't know.
0: <laughs> so to switch gears a little bit, we I want to talk about M&A. We saw M&A take a dip last year, but at least anecdotally, it feels like more big partnerships are being announced between large incumbents and startups, between incumbents, between startups. What is on the mind of large digital health companies like Veridigm these days? And what do you think 2024 has in store for us?
1: It has been a a pretty interesting journey. And I guess I'll I'll, I'll start it from post-COVID, right? Because COVID was an anomaly in itself where people were putting money. You know, and obviously with the interest rates going up, that has impacted, I guess, the appetite. For some acquisitions of startups, right? Where the startups now, it's harder for them to borrow money. The companies like ours, we want to make sure we're getting a good return on that money. The context, you know, you and I have talked about this before. When you look at how startups can interact with companies like ours, what we're looking for in a startup is a couple of different things. One, they either have a technology in place that we need that the economics are favorable for us to buy the technology and the people rather than create it ourselves. That's one. Another one is it can get us to a set of customers that that the perception of companies, I mean, look, we used to be all scripts and wonderful company, a lot of great stuff went on, but Truth be told, people look at all scripts and the name as old, hence why we're called Veridime now, which is a much cooler name. But a lot of that is where the startup world can help us, right? And when we look at a lot of these, you know, I guess some of the feedback I give to startups and their founders and the boards when they're looking, you know, a lot of the technologies out there are fantastic. They look great on PowerPoint. They believe they've solved a problem. The biggest advice I can give someone trying to get my attention or my colleagues attention is make sure I perceive that's a problem. Because very often people come to us with technologies that are very Mm -hmm. interesting, but we don't believe we have a commercial need there, or we don't believe the markets there. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure that's frustrating. You know, it's like calling your baby ugly. That's a very, you know, difficult pill for a lot of founders to swallow. The ones that I've seen be most successful are the ones that can pivot, are the ones that understand the complexity in working with larger companies and can pivot their messaging and adapt to the business problem we perceive that we have. I don't know if that answers your question yeah, exactly, no, it, but that to me, that's the number one thing because I'm inundated, right? And if I don't perceive it to be a problem, you know, it, it yeah. goes in the circular file. So
0: so other than founders kind of coming out of working at a large company, what other ways are there for founders to understand what unmet needs you have?
1: Well, I think there's a, a you know, everybody in their development as a business person, has to take a hard look at themselves, right? If, you know, very often the founders are so married to their idea, their perception of the problem, the way they want to solve it, I think they miss the opportunity. The founders that I've enjoyed working with, you know, at IQVIA, at Symphony, and now at Veridigm, are those that understand how to kind of work the system a little bit. And meaning they're able to tailor their presentation in our language. They're able to identify the problems as we see them. And they have a solid foundation, right? Because very often, you know, you get two kinds of founders. We we have some technical founders that come in and they have made the perfect Ferrari. It's got everything in it. And it was made perfectly. But by the time the price gets, you know, they want to command such a premium for that when, you know, maybe a Volkswagen will do in this particular situation for that problem. And I don't drive either of them. so.
0: I like that analogy because you can also think of it as like maybe they come to you with a Ferrari, but actually your problem is getting through the mountains and you need a Range Rover.
1: No, for sure, for you sure, know? that happens. <laughs> that happens all the time. Look, we all get very myopic about what's in front yeah. of us and our plate. So I, I try to be understanding to some degree when I hear the pitch. But I think the founders and look, a lot of these folks, it's their first or second job, and they have not had huge experience getting rejected. Right? They were smart. Kids, they went to great schools, or they did some great development work, and everybody's always told them how brilliant they are, and and you know their (laughs) parents tell them, "Wow, this is such a great idea," and then they get some financial backing, and their backers are like, "Hey, this is going to be the greatest thing." They don't, you know, I I think you got to tone it down in your head a little bit, and you have to look at okay, what are the pitfalls? What are my goals? What am I really trying to do other than? show up at a meeting and tell everybody how much I know about a problem I may not really understand, but I have really cool tech on a PowerPoint yeah. slide.
0: I think a lot of folks get distracted by shiny new technologies and feel like they're they're the ones to bring this to a problem versus starting with the problem and truly understanding that unmet need and building from there.
1: Agreed. And But okay. my advice to the startup leaders is, be somewhere in the middle, right? You can have pride in what you're doing. You should think your baby's beautiful. That's all wonderful. But if you don't understand the perspective, because very often I find that leaders and startups uh, are almost like anti-corporate. And whether we like it or not, (laughs) there are politics and everything. There are corporate needs, corporate approvals. And, you know, in my career, I wouldn't quite say I'm an entrepreneur, but I would say inside a corporation, I'm pretty flexible and pretty entrepreneurial in the way that I look at things. But to some degree, you have to, I'm not gonna say you have to accept it. I'm gonna say you have to understand it and you have to navigate it and you have to figure out what's it gonna take to get in front of that person that can say yes, Right? Because very often, you know, they start out at a lower level with somebody that's just enamored with tech. Mm -hmm. But the question is how do you get to a transaction?
0: We'll be right back after the break. One time you said to me regarding M&A, I don't need any more problems, especially problems I'm paying for. How can a startup, a founder, or just a small company in general, like frame themselves as not a problem? What does it mean to be not a problem?
1: Well, uh, uh, very often, and sometimes there are startups and, and then there's kind of the next generation, right, where mm-hmm. they have some revenue but they typically have huge costs, right? Because, you know, look, everybody who comes to me, and just so anyone listening knows, every deck looks the same. We're going to do a million, (laughs) then two million, then three million, (laughs) then 70 million. And the hockey sticks there. Okay, I get it, guys. I get it. (laughs) But I guess when I'm looking at things, one, I'm trying to figure out what problem I'm going to solve. And if it's a new business that we're trying to get in, what I don't want to do is say, okay, we bought this company. It's got 10 million in revenue, you know, and then you find out like 3 million of it, it's at risk, you know, through the diligence and that starts all of that, or you find out after you bought them, which that really stinks. But your expectation is, hey, we're going to just absorb all the cost. So, you know, we have an amazing data set at veridon We're not only an originator, but we aggregate together a number of different data sets that really gives us some of the best clinical information in the market today. And, you know, look, it's a world of cooperation, right? We work together with people we compete with all the time. Very often we'll have startups come to us and say, I really want to get my hands on your data. And hey, we'll make something together. And then when we sell it, we'll split it. And I look at them like, Why would I do that, right? So I've spent millions and millions of dollars and person years developing all this. Mm. You want to take all that, slap a front end on it, and then think we're partners, right? So if you don't have that other side of the equation somewhat figured out, right? You know, we very often get, and this is my favorite term that they never taught me in business school, but pre-revenue as a term, that is something I need to contemplate, right? Because if you're pre-revenue, then the question I'm asking is, is this a technology I can build myself or do the economics work where they have differentiated technology and they can make the rest of what I have get faster to money, get faster to deals, I'm not that interested in pre-revenue companies that are just like, hey, cool, but with your muscle behind it, we could do great things.
0: Buy versus build. It's going to be easier. Yeah. Right. Uh, if you don't have the customers, you're just having having less to bring to the table. But I'm sure you're seeing more of those companies now that funding has decreased. So a lot of those that raised in 2020, 2021 have built something cool, but really haven't grown into their valuation, aren't able to fundraise again. They're looking for a soft landing. And you're, I'm assuming, seeing all these companies?
1: Seeing a lot. Seeing yeah. a lot. But I think this is where, and I've talked to some you know, I'll call them really cool founders that get it, right? They want to be collaborative. You know, I'm working with a a young guy right now on a project and he's fantastic. Like he's trying to solve the problem through my lens, right? And not being kind of obnoxious about it on the way through. I think, you know, look, I, I guess, you know, you have a lot of founders that listen and if they're looking for a perspective, right? I don't know that I'm right, but I think I have an expect a perspective from experience. You know, the best way to get their attention one is tell me how you can help me solve my problem, or how it's more economic for me to more economical for me to work with you rather than build it myself. Now, granted, I may not have the skill sets inside to build it myself, and that's okay. But then talk about how you're going to contribute to the business. Because when I told you, like, I don't want to inherit any problems, you know, very often you get people, and this is more, I would say, in the mid-sized companies, right? Where they come in, they just want to sell it, they'll stay a year, and then they never want to hear about it again. You know, when I was at IQVIA IMS, you know, we were buying companies like crazy. Now, it was a different time. There were different purposes. There were revenue projections we wanted to meet. it it was a different way of looking at the business uh, then, but then these guys disappear. And what you see is the business that they built atrophies, right? Because when you're acquired, you know, and anybody who thinks that, you know, Hey, I want to get acquired by a bigger company and I want to stay there and help build this thing. Right. Maybe they have a, you know, maybe it's a big stock deal or, or maybe there's earnouts involved. The key is figure out who your sponsor is. It's very important to make sure the person that, you know, it's no different than when you go to work in a big company, right? You have to make sure your rabbi's there. You have to make sure the person that's responsible for this deal has a voice at the right table, because for your business to continue to grow, you're going to need internal funding, internal access. And this is where whether we like it or not, the reality to politics and human beings come in.
0: Relationships. I mean, the problem there though, is that people leave and then you've you know invested all this time into a relationship. That person leaves and the person that replaces them doesn't really want to acquire all these companies that they didn't get to vet. I've seen that happen. 100%. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that happens all the time. And that's why, I mean, look, you can't control for everything. But as a CEO of a startup, I do believe you need to have a level of understanding of how that game works, um, because typically you're going to have an earnout, and you want to be able to achieve that earnout. So it's important you negotiate those points up front, right? If they say, hey, we want to attribute X millions to your business and then you'll get paid out along the time. You have to make sure you're able to do that, right? That all of a sudden you're not getting absorbed in, you know, the Borg and you don't have that opportunity any longer. Those are important things, I think, for founders to contemplate when when they're picking a partner, right? It has to be a two-way street.
0: So a lot of founders, I shouldn't say a lot, some founders tend to be, I don't know the right word, neurotic, overly protective, wanting everybody to sign NDAs and like worried that a large company is going to come learn what they're doing and then just like flip a switch and put them out of business, How do you, as someone who's been in the big companies, like, is that true? Is that going on behind the scenes at large companies? Do they view startups as competitors and they're just like waiting to find out what they're doing and, or is it like you really don't care and they should stop worrying?
1: Well, all right, here's a politically correct answer. I think it's somewhere in the middle. Okay. Here's the challenge, right? You want to protect your IP and most people in big companies respect that. I And I can speak for myself, the companies I've been associated and the people I've been associated with. I don't ever remember any conversation ever with the inclination, hey, let's go in here, hear what these guys are pitching, and then we're going to go try to build it ourselves. Like that was never a premeditated. I can't say it never happened somewhere, but that's not really a premeditated strategy. You know, you have to believe Especially for people in big companies, you know, frankly, I'd be more concerned with startups talking to startups. Mm. Right. Because those are the guys that are looking for an edge. You know, the, the, the large companies, yeah. I think it's a little bit less so. Mm. Um, you know, one of the things that I went through when we were at Symphony Health and we were competing with a big, big established player in IQVIA, um, we wanted to be easy to do business with. So what we did is we tried to take the noise out of the equation, meaning we didn't sign or send over these draconian NDAs, you know, that required your blood and your, your children. <laughs> and, um, we get a lot of it. I mean, I get, you know, almost every time you can't hire anybody here for two years. I'm like, I'm not signing that. Right. That is not. Yeah.
0: Like logistically, that's annoying.
1: Well, logistically, and it's also just, frankly, it's to some degree immaturity. Um, because one, I, we have 2,400 people, right? I can't keep track of every single one. So from a practical standpoint, it doesn't make sense. Two, it just, the vibe's not good, right? So what I'll usually agree to is, hey, I won't hire you or your executive team or mm-hmm. something like that. But I'm not going to have, I'm not going to put an undue burden for something we're never going to do. And candidly, every time I walk in and talk to a startup or a founder or a midsize, um, I kind of figure it'll probably go nowhere. But what happens is those one or two that go somewhere, they're awesome, right? So I don't want to spend a whole lot of time negotiating very complex NDAs with everyone. Sure. You know, you have to protect what you have, but then you also have to protect, I mean, you have to look at it. Realistically.
0: If your technology is it, you need the business model around it, you need the customers around it, the team, your company is so much more than just an idea. And that's the reason why VCs won't sign an NDA. They see so many ideas, they talk to so many people, it's impractical. But you also don't don't need it because really like I get feeling protective of your idea, but if it is simply the idea that is going to win. I mean, that's just ludicrous, right? It is the execution that sets you apart.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be thoughtful. You have to figure out who you're talking to, but then you also have to be practical about what this means to the other people, person, to your point, right? A VC is going to see a gazillion ideas. Like I, just because I'm meeting with you doesn't mean, you know, I'm going to sign away any rights. Yeah. It's not worth it. (laughs) You know, if you don't want me to steal what you build or give your PowerPoint away, I'm cool with that. I get that. But that's about it.
0: Exactly. So changing gears a little bit, there are relatively few digital health companies. I think the last I checked, it was 55. At the same time, there have been thousands of companies that have been funded in this space. Few really make it to that scale. In your mind, what did Veridigm, formerly Allscripts, um, and other companies that have made it to this this list, this this beacon of the being a public company, what do they do right to actually get to that scale?
1: Well, I've been asked that question before, and typically I just say it's my genius. I figured it out all by myself. Yeah, um, of course. For whatever reason, <laughs> nobody believes that. You know, I, I, I think you have a few different kinds of companies out there. A company like Allscripts was founded many years ago on completely other principles, nothing to do with the work that we do today. I mean, you can draw a line back to it, but the vision, no one sat, you know, the founder of Allscripts did not sit there and say, okay, we're going to have a digital health media business, you know, in 2024. I think the company was founded in the 80s at some point. But what happens is, companies with good fundamentals and when they address, you know, and this is another thing for for founders to contemplate, I'm always interested in the tar- total addressable market, the TAM for what you perceive to be your business opportunity. Right? So what a lot of companies like ours have done is they've been successful in going out, building a business, generating cash that gives them the time to pivot to some of these other areas. So the business that I lead has three parts to it. We have a team of people that are so much smarter than I am, uh, epidemiologists, statisticians, pharma economics folks that do a lot of the prospective retrospective regulatory and safety work. So that is applying the data, following these data, applying insights and being able to understand what that really means. Right. So it's really a combination of a service and a digital offer. We have a core data business where we sell the richest clinical information that we believe is available in the market today. And then we have what's called our digital health media group. And that is a group where I'll give you an example. And I know I know at some point we should definitely talk about this, but that brings up a lot of the work that we're doing with the American College of Cardiology. So we were given an opportunity to collaborate with them. Now, uh, a few years ago, we bought their registries and by buying them, we were, were, I would say, more well-suited to run a big registry than the college was. And we have an excellent collaboration with them. We work very deeply with them on a number of different fronts, but we were just given a really cool opportunity. You know, I know a lot of the startup folks are younger, so you're probably, you may not be talking to your doctors about your cholesterol yet, but it's coming, guys, no matter how much you work out.
0: Um, Should they? When should they?
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, now everybody should early. But um, we were given an opportunity because the college had a theory, right? And I don't know who came up with it, and I don't know. You know, they don't do anything without research. So I'm sure it was very well researched. But there are studies out there. There's heart calculators. You know, anybody can Google on their phone, you know, the heart risk calculator. It takes your blood pressure. You know, you enter your blood pressure, your uh, LDL, HDL, total cholesterol, triglycerides, your blood sugars. And it says, hey, you have X risk. Well, I think the college believed that it was clumsy for physicians to have to pull out their phone to do that. You know, there's studies like the Framingham study that's been around forever. And I know every time I get blood work, it pops up. But, you know, there's a lot of new metrics that people want to use. So what we're doing right now is we're working with them where we have populated our electronic health records. And we pre-populate the outcome from their blood work into a calculator so they don't have to do it. And you're thinking to yourself, well, that's no big deal. Well, guess what? It is a big deal because there's a lot of people that aren't, you know, medicine's art and science. And most practicing physicians probably use both. But there's a belief that more people need to get their blood work under control. And this helps highlight that. For the physician, you know, these physicians are busy, cardiologists, interventional cardiologists, primary care physicians, especially in the primary care office, especially in big clinics. You know, they're spending like 60 cents, 60 seconds with them and being a little facetious, but they don't spend much time because they're running around from from bed to bed. And what we're trying to do is make it easy for them to draw conclusions. And that's the beauty of our digital health media business. And it is cool to know we're helping people
0: mm-hmm. and making physicians' time more efficient yeah. and hopefully higher impact. I we you know, thinking about just, that in general that problem within healthcare the EHR has you know become ubiquitous but it's also become the biggest headache for physicians and physicians feel like they're you know they're not paid enough they're spending too much time administratively patients feel like they don't get enough time and healthcare is too expensive and it feels like this next wave of making the EHR actually work for the physician in service of the patient is how it's supposed to be
1: yeah, and that's that's something I hear, I would say, fairly frequently. So I'll give you a bit of an anecdote. Um, my brother-in-law is a rheumatologist. He is the nicest guy on the planet. Always willing to help, just a great disposition, very calm. And one day he told me, if I have to do anything in the EHR, I'm automatically annoyed. Then we started talking about pharmaceutical reps and how they call on. them, And he's like, they should, I don't know, they should pay me for my time. And I'm like, okay, time out. Time out. One of the things that I think is important for founders, for everyone to contemplate is, and I'm generalizing. Physicians are excellent at medicine. They're excellent at patient care. They're usually, you know, the best and brightest, you know, when we're growing up, going to school and, you know, they've worked really hard they're not always the most welcoming to new technologies or new ways of learning or ways that involve interactions with other people. So one of the things I shared with my brother-in-law is he said, I have all these reps that come to my office. I don't want to meet with them. You know, there's no samples. It doesn't matter. And I said, so what you're telling me is, you know, everything and they're not going to make any, there's no plan To invest in rheumatology going forward, which obviously is a silly con. So I said, what I want you to do is go pick three companies that are relevant to your patients. And I want you to spend the next six months building an actual relationship. Now, yeah, you might not like when the rep comes in, but can the rep get you to a CME that you need to go to? Can the rep enhance your practice by giving you speaking opportunities? Or and when I put it through that lens all of a sudden he was like, all right, that's reasonable. And he kind of went off to, I said, look, don't necessarily spend time with the company detailing you for aspirin, right? That, that, that's a waste of time. But where we started talking about the EHR, you know, they look at it and, and this is just an opinion, but I think physicians and other healthcare professionals, look at it as almost big brothers overseeing me. And then I got to figure out how I get paid. And it's so convoluted. I mean, let's be honest, the healthcare system and the way money flows through the healthcare system is a mess. Part of the challenge is you have all these physicians and healthcare professionals where they don't work for one company. You have the government that's the biggest provider So the question is, how do you solve that in between? And I think they view the EHRs as almost just another complexity. I can tell you from a selfish perspective, besides the fact my company has EHRs, but I love the way I can access my health record and get prescriptions filled and set up appointments. So it's one of those things I think both patients and providers have to embrace the technology and I will make a prediction for you. I do believe as time goes on, that angst about that will go down, right? Because it was introduced to people that were 20 years into practice. And look, I you know, nobody likes change, no matter what they say, that we're really embracing digital health media or those services. I find the doctors coming out of med school now and, and, and you know, the folks that open up practice, there's a lot less drama around it. Oh, in
0: sure. my opinion, yeah. Well, and I mean, just think about how much it's changed in a decade. And for, as you said, like now, now, we're actually able to get our records digitally by logging in versus having to like have something faxed. It's right it, it really. Ha- I think move slow in healthcare, but now, now you know I've been in healthcare for a little bit. Now I look back even a decade. I'm like, okay, cool. We have made progress in some areas, and the EHR is one of those areas that has become truly has become ubiquitous.
1: Absolutely. And I I think what uh, physicians, healthcare professionals, administrative staff that supports them, you know, it's one of those things, fighting it doesn't make sense at this point, right? You have to use it for the most part. And so you want to embrace a system that fits your practice, You know, it used to be, remember, they'd come in with those trays with the big computers on it. Now it's an iPad. Yeah. Right? So I I think that will continue to improve.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, Stu, I could talk to you all day, um, but we do need to wrap up. And I want to ask you my favorite closing question. If you could wave a magic wand and change anything in the U.S. healthcare system, what would it be?
1: Free healthcare for children. It,
0: that was that was a very quick answer.
1: Well, it's been the same We've answer for this. a long time. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting. Uh, I've attended some conferences where I've heard people that I don't agree with politically speak on this topic. And the fact that we can't come together and offer health care to people that need it. Right, look, you, you gotta break yeah. a problem down into solvable chunks, right? The concept of free healthcare for everyone is lovely, but I don't think it's very practical, at least not here in the United States, at least not in within this generation, right? Just from a practical manner. What people don't often contemplate is, look, we have a societal obligation to one another. And people are born into circumstances, some beyond their control. Well, everyone yeah. beyond their control, but- yeah. You know, what we don't necessarily contemplate is a young woman is pregnant, she has two other kids by two different fathers, she has to take two buses in the subway to get to the free clinic to wait for six hours, and if she's not, if she doesn't get, get back to work on time, she could lose her job. Those are the people we need to help. Yeah. Right? We, we have an obligation to help, but you want to raise my taxes, and there's a good way to do that. I'm fine with it. You have children out there. I mean, there's no reason any child should be hungry in yeah. this country.
0: Uh, yeah. So I was going to say, same for school lunches. Uh, it's crazy to me that we have children who d- are going hungry and who have letters sent home because they don't have money for lunch. It's embarrassing. Yeah,
1: for our and country. I think those, you know, I think part of the challenge is, When Washington tries to solve the problems, you know, the intent going in is probably just fine. But what happens is everything gets piled on top of it. And all of a sudden the children's lunch bill is tied to a bridge in Alaska. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. So if I could solve that, that would make me very happy.
0: Yeah, that's a good one. Well, Stu, thank you so much for your time today. If founders want to reach out to you, can they? And if so, how?
1: Absolutely. I'll give two emails. One is steward.green at com. But we do have a very, very good uh, cybersecurity team. So not all emails get through. But my personal email is stugreen, S T U T R E E N at comcast.net. And of course, LinkedIn is 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 a wonderful yeah. tool. But uh yeah, oh, always happy, always happy to provide advice. Just remember, the advice is worth what you're paying for it.
0: <laughs> Well, thank you. I mean, and thank you for always just being an advocate for founders and supporting them in a way that's really positive, um, because it's hard work and we, we appreciate what you do. So thank you.
1: My pleasure, Hallie. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: Thanks for listening to The Heart of Healthcare. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to support the podcast, please leave a rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe. The Heart of Healthcare is produced by Holly Teko. The show is engineered, edited, and mixed by Kyle Moore. Visit our website, heartofhealthcarepodcast.com, for show notes and episode
1: details. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers.